I'm preaching this morning from the epistle of James, the first chapter, beginning at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will pass away. Blessed is the man who, pers- who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, underscore that word, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. There's nothing any more universal than trouble. They just keep crowding into our lives, don't they? And it seems sometimes that they will never go away. Martin Luther was right when he said that mankind is bruised with adversity. We are bruised by circumstances and by disappointments. We are bruised by the way people treat us and by pain and sickness and heartache. And the beat goes on and on. The psalmist said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Apostle Paul says, We are afflicted on every side, perplexed, persecuted and struck down. And someone said that if you were to follow the path of the apostle's life, it would be like following the path of a wounded game. It would be the trail of blood. And Peter writing his epistle said, don't think it strange, don't be shocked if fiery trials come into your life as though some strange thing were happening to you. There's nothing any more universal than trials. And the one thing that you and I have in common today is trouble. And sometimes they just won't go away. I want us to deal with those troubles or trials that won't leave us alone, won't go away. And we're going to look at them as your worksheet suggests as we deal with some important questions. Number one, there are some things that are true about troubles 
And the first is that trouble is inevitable. You will notice that it is not if some trial comes, but when. It is not a matter of who will escape trials and who will experience them, for there are no exemptions and there is none exempt. He said God has had one son without sin, but he's never had a son without suffering. Trouble is inevitable. The word various there is an interesting word when you study it from the Greek. Etymologists say that that word various translated divers in the King James comes from a root word from which we get our word polka dots. And polka dots are spread across the garment in all sizes and colors and trials dot every life. There is no exception. Somebody tells a story, I think it's true, about the man who was commuting from the suburbs into the city by commuter train, by the subway. He had been nauseated during the night, but he'd gotten up, felt a little better, had a large breakfast, got on the commuter train, started into town. He was in the far suburbs, and the rocking movement of that subway just started making him nauseous. He was getting sick. He thought he couldn't stand it. The further the train went and the more rocking movement, just like getting seasick, he thought he just couldn't take it any longer. And so as the subway came to a, to a, to a dock to stop, he was going to make his way to the back and get off the subway. He couldn't ride any further. He was so sick. And just as they stopped at a dock, get the picture now, on the dock, stands a man waiting to get on. You're ahead of me now. Some of you are smiling. He's in his gray pinstripe banker suit, has his attache case sitting beside him, and he's reading the Wall Street Journal. He hears the subway coming, but he's really right in the middle of the Wall Street Journal, and he really doesn't look up until the subway comes roaring to a stop. The man's just made it to the door. The door swings open, and he loses his breakfast all over that guy standing there waiting to get on. He looks up from the Wall Street Journal just about the time the doors fly open and the guy just spits his breakfast all over him and the door slams and the subway train lurches on. And the person standing by who told the story read the man's lips and there were a few expletives and then he said, why me? <laughs> I may be speaking to some this morning who feel that life has just unloaded on you. And you've not mouthed it. You've screamed it out to God. Why me? Why not you? Are you some pet that God would exempt from suffering why he, not, he did not even spare his own son from suffering. Trial is inevitable. The second thing is true about trouble is that it is for a purpose. And the text suggests that there are two purposes in trials that come in life, in trouble. The first, he said, is to produce endurance. 
The word means to remain under, to abide. It means to hang in there when there is no answer on the surface. On the walls of the Nazi prison camp, these words were inscribed on the inside of the walls. I believe in the sun when I cannot see it shining. I believe in love when I cannot feel the warmth of its presence. And I believe in God when God is silent. Hang in there. Produces endurance. The word we've liked to translate from that word is the word patience. Now you ask, why do troubles not go away in my life? It just may be because there is no endurance. There has not been the production of patience. And may I say parenthetically before I leave this thought that we should look upon trials as servants that are here to produce God's result. For after all, it's God who is grading the test. And the 12th verse says, uses the word approved as though one passed the examination. That word there, approved, is the word that describes a, a vessel that has come from the furnace of the fire and is not cracked. And when they had a vessel that came through the fiery furnace and did not crack, they'd write the word dokama, approved on the bottom. It was ready for service. It was ready for use. And if the vessel cracked, it was put on the bargain counter, for it was really useless. It's the word that describes the swimming instructor when he throws the boy into the water to swim across to the other side. Not, to, not so he'll drown, but so he can be approved. The purpose of trial is to prove, is to approve patience and endurance. And the second purpose of trials, he says, is to produce maturity of character. Verse 4. He talks about the mature person, perfect, lacking nothing. I want you to know this morning that there are no great saints without suffering. And the only people I've ever known who are real mature and perfect, lacking nothing are the people who have come out of the furnace of trouble. And it's really kind of like a domino effect here that he describes. When you put dominoes up in a line and you touch one and it falls and it just starts knocking down the rest. Trials come to produce endurance and patience and, and then maturity of character and then perfection like Jesus. Like the teenager who decides that he's not going to sacrifice or compromise his conviction and he comes out of that trial when everybody in his peer group abandons him and he feels so alone and so rejected. But when he comes out, he's mature. Or like the businessman who finds that maturity of character in the midst of trial and he'll not compromise his business even though he loses everything. When he comes out, he's perfect in the sense of maturity. Conrad Meyer said, one of these days God is going to reveal to every Christian that the very principle they now resist is the thing God uses to mold and shape their character, is the thing that moves them to perfection. Austin Phelps said, suffering is like a wonderful fertilizer to the roots of character. And Watchman Nee said, we'll never learn anything new about God except through adversity. 
The purpose of trials is to produce endurance, is to produce maturity of character. You can know two things about trials. You can know they're inevitable, they're coming, and you can know they're for a purpose. Secondly, how can I live above my troubles? How can I conquer them? I know that if I do not conquer trials or troubles, they will conquer me. Well, there's a threefold answer in our text. The first is found in three words. The first word is in verse 2, consider. The second word is in verse 3, know. And the third word is in verse 4, let. In order to help you to remember then, let's make it an alliteration. The way to conquer trouble is to consider, to comprehend, and to cooperate. To consider, verse 2. Consider it all joy, that is to say, that in order to conquer troubles, a man has to approach them with a certain mindset, and that mindset is joy. And I'll confess that it is the exact opposite of the normal mindset. The word consider there is a word that says or suggests comes from the root to lead the way into, that is to say, that our first thought toward trouble and trial ought to be a thought of joy. That our first response, our leading response, our leading thought concerning trouble ought to be one of joy. I'll not divide life into the bad and the good. I'll approach life as though every experience were a source of deep and abiding joy. Are you there yet? If you, if you have that mindset toward trouble, you're a rare person, and I want you to know that you're in for some great lessons from God. Consider it the mindset of joy. Comprehend. That is, to know, to understand or to know that trials are not there for bad, they're there for good. Trials are not in my life in order to make me fail, but so that I can succeed. The whole purpose of trials, the whole purpose of trouble is not in order to make us fall, but so that we can soar in order not to defeat us, but that we can be successful. Know that about trials. Cooperate, number three. Don't fight it. Don't struggle against the trouble that's come in life. I read somewhere of a man who was walk, walking along the beach in Florida. He felt life had just kind of spit up on him. To be honest about it, he was depressed. And as he walked along the beach, he saw shining in the moonlight a little shell, and he went over and picked it up. It was delicate and thin. And as he held it in his hand, he knew that the slightest bit of pressure on that shell would just crush it, annihilate it. And yet it was lying there on the beach, and these angry waves were just constantly roaring in upon it, upon it and pounding it. They were just bombarding it, heavy and tumultuous waves. And he thought to himself, how is it that that delicate little shell could lie there and take this pounding from life 
and still not be destroyed by it. And then it occurred to him that the shell just kind of rode the waves, just kind of used the waves, didn't struggle against them, didn't resist them, just kind of got on top of them and rode them. The normal reaction when trouble comes is to resist it. We chafe against it and we get bitter and we resent it and we pray, God, help me out of this. And we seek every human way possible to escape the trouble. I want you to know that it might be the trouble you're passing through today might be the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's the attitude, cooperate. Under the mighty hand of God. What's on a hand? Well, one thing's on a hand, fingers. And what do fingers do? Well, one thing they do is pinch. When I was a kid growing up, sitting on one of those hard pews, I can sympathize with you. I thought the preacher was going to preach forever, every Sunday, in case he didn't get to preach anymore. I thought he was going to preach the whole Bible. And I'd get, I'd get a little restless, and Mother would reach over there, and she'd just get my leg. You know, in the summertime, I'd wear those short pants. She'd just get me right on the calf of the leg between, and she's a little old bitty woman, scrawny, little bony hands, but she'd get my flesh between those two fingers and she just pinched the way out of just, you know, and, and you can't do it, you can't say anything, you know, how, you're not going to jump up and scream and you're not going to, you're not going to backhand your mother, not in public, you know, so you just kind of sit there and you just want to die, it hurts so bad. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I have a feeling that sometimes God gets his hand on our life and through the circumstances that happen, he shapes it and molds it. And with his hand, with his fingers, he's molding and he's shaping. And sometimes it's so painful we can hardly stand it. But Isaiah said, Woe is, woe is he who strives against his maker. Shall the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me thus? And that's the vision that Jeremiah had in his mind when he went down to the potter's house and he saw that potter working his plan out on the clay and the wheel. And he knew that God was sovereign. And God was expressing his sovereignty in the plan and in the pressure of his hand. Sometime you may want to cry, Oh, stay your hand, O oh God. But you just remember that the hand of God that's shaping and molding you, if you'll cooperate, is the hand of a God with a passionate heart that you would manifest His glory and nothing less. And you take a look at that hand as you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You look at that, if you will, and you'll see holes in it that were made there by His nail print, by the nails. And you understand that the only time the hand has ever hurt the clay is when the clay resisted. Cooperate. Number three. Why do my troubles overwhelm me? Why is it that they get the best of me? Does that sound like anything you've asked before? Well, there are two answers to that question, and they're found in our text. One is because of the lack of wisdom. And so he says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. 
Now, what is wisdom in the biblical sense? From the biblical perspective, the word wisdom means to be able to see from God's perspective so that troubles overwhelm us because we're not seeing them from God's perspective. But he says, if you'll ask of God, he'll help you see them from his perspective. That's a good word. Have you ever watched a parade through the knothole in the fence? If you've ever watched a parade through a knothole in the fence and you just took one look through the knothole, you might, you might imagine, you might assume that the band was made up of trombones and that only. For all you could see would be just what was directly in front of you. And if you happened to look just as the trombones came by, you would imagine that this whole band is made up of trombones, sliding trombones. But if you could get a, bo you could get a stool and get above the fence, you could see the whole band, the whole parade, and the whole thing would look differently, wouldn't it? The wisdom that God gives for troubles is this, the enabling of one to get above the fence and see the whole thing in perspective. And that's a great sight when we do it. I can see it now. Have you said that? I've heard it. I see it all now. I see the purpose in it. The second reason why troubles overwhelm us is because of the lack of faith. And so he talks about it here. Let him ask in faith, not doubting, for a doubtful man is like the sea. That's a descriptive picture. That's waves coming in and coming out. No stability, wavering. And then he talks about the double-minded man. You know what a double-minded man is? He's a person that wants his will and he wants God's will at the same time. The lack of faith. You say, I have faith. Yes, but sometimes our faith, listen to me, if you've been asleep, wake up for this. Sometimes our faith is tied to too many presuppositions about how God will or will not act. Sometimes troubles overwhelm us because our faith is tied to our expectation of how God's going to act under a certain situation. And if God veers from that action that we anticipate, some people just give up and they denounce and they get discouraged. J.D. Gray went into his room, to the room of his friend, his best friend. The man was dying. And he prayed this prayer, Lord, if you'll spare his life, I'll rededicate myself to service. I'll do what you want me to do, what, whatever it is, if you'll spare my friend's life. I can't stand the thought of his death. He went outside down the hall, stood by the window looking over the gray city of New Orleans on a winter day. And God spoke to his heart and said, what if he doesn't die? What if he does die? Does that mean that you won't serve me? And then J.D. Gray said, God overwhelmed me with conviction of a lack of faith, true faith, and I said, God, I'll serve you. I take it back. I'll serve you regardless of what happens. You remember the story in the book of Daniel of the three Hebrew children, Daniel's friends? And the king told them, if you don't bow down and worship this image, 
you're going to be persecuted. And this is their response. Our God is able to deliver us, and we believe He'll deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known that we will not bow down to your image. Now, I like that. Listen to what he's saying in the general paraphrase. We know our God is able to deliver us, and we think he will, but if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him, and we're not going to bow down. That's servant. That's faith regardless. Troubles will overwhelm you this morning if your faith is tied to a presupposition that God is going to bless your life without them, for he's not. But if you will serve God regardless when troubles come, you'll triumph over them. And this is what the poet meant when he said, I will not doubt, though all my ships at sea come drifting home with broken masts and sails, I'll... Believe the hand which never fails. From seeming evil worketh good to me. And though I weep because those sails are battered, still will I cry while my best hopes lie shattered. I trust in thee. I will not doubt though sorrows fall like rain and troubles swarm like bees about a hive. I shall believe the heights from which I strive are only reached by anguish and by pain. And though I groan and tremble with my crosses, I yet shall see through my severest losses the greater gain. I'll trust you regardless. The last question. When I've handled my troubles correctly, what will happen? What then? Two things will result. You will experience real happiness. There's that word blessed again, verse 12. That word always is coming up in the most unlikely places, that word. Blessed. It describes true happiness. It describes the bliss of God. It describes the joy of God. Now, doesn't it make sense that if a person has come through trouble and he's come through triumphantly, that all that is left for him is the bliss of God, real happiness. And the second result will be real living. And that's found in the thought, he'll receive the crown of life. Now I looked everywhere because I wanted to find what that meant, the crown of life. I think I found it. Alexander McLaren says that in the, the idea that's in that phrase, the, the crown of life is a threefold glorious idea. One idea is that it means that you will be victoriously, you will be victoriously triumphant and publicly honored. For when a runner would win the race, it was great that he won the race but it was even greater that he was publicly honored and they put him on this platform and they put the crown on his head. Have you ever watched the Olympic Games and you've just 
sat there enthralled by the presentations of the medals. And there stands that guy in the center, on the center platform. He's number one. He's won the race. And they are running up his flag in the center and they're playing the national anthem of his country. And there he stands, you know, just like this. And you can just see goosebumps on top of goosebumps and the joy and the, and the exuberant enthusiasm there. Not just because he's won, but because he's publicly honored. Not just because he's publicly honored, but because he's able to stand for his country. And some of them will have flags and they'll hold them up. When a person has come through trials through the redemptive grace of God and he's been victorious, he stands a witness to the unbelieving world of the power of God's grace. And as he stands there in the joy of that, being able to bear witness to an unbelieving world that God will see you through anything, there's nothing like that. And he said a second idea that's involved in that is festal joy. For when you put the crown on the winner and the ceremonies are through, then the celebration begins and there's festal joy. And there's one last thought. There is sovereign dominion. Dominion over circumstances. The crown suggests sovereignty. It suggests dominion. It suggests the king's life. For when one has come through trouble victoriously because of the grace of God, he stands above everything that could ever happen. And he stands in sovereignty. Now you and I know and understand that what I have described this morning about troubles and how to overcome them are only possible to those who know him and trust him, who live by faith. Let me make this invitation this morning. Listen carefully. Is it possible that God is speaking to you through the circumstances of your life to say, I want you to commit yourself to me. I want you to submit to me. I want you to live a surrendered life. Could it be that God has his hand and his fingers on your life and he's shaping you this morning. Some of you he may be calling into the ministry to a vocational ministry. Some of you he may be shaping into servanthood and witness, testimony. Some of you he may be calling to salvation. You've never been saved. God is working in the circumstances of your life because his one desire is that you reflect and manifest his glory. And so the question this morning is, are you willing to submit 
humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I want to be the first. I want to be the first to rededicate myself to God. I want you to be the second and the third and the fourth. And I want revival to begin, a revival of the supernatural activity of God. And I don't want God to have to bring us through these fires of trial in order to get us there. I want us to repent now before that's necessary. And I want you to be honest enough to say, Lord, this is in my life and it's not pleasing. I want you to be honest enough to say, I've never trusted Christ as my personal Savior. I don't care if you are a member of the church. I want you to be honest enough to say, I've been standing out on the fringes and I want to come. Maybe some of you just need to come to the altar to pray, just to kneel here. The church on its knees. Whatever God leads you to do today, I'm going to pray right now that you'll say yes and obedience and that you'll come right away.